the reality, unfortunately, is that when such an event happened, we've got about two to three minutes to start basic life support and about five minutes to get a defibrillator there quickly to shock them out of the regular heart rhythm. Because unfortunately, after those five minutes are gone, the chances of someone having a meaningful recovery uh, diminish fairly quickly. And that's why training is extremely important. Welcome to Forever Young, the health and well-being podcast from Lanzerhof. My name is Mario Pedazzoli, and in every episode, join me in conversation with a variety of health experts and special guests as we explore what it means to live well. We may not find the secret to eternal youth, but join me on our quest as we explore just what it means to live a balanced, healthy and happy life. Hello again and welcome. Today's show is dedicated to the heart. In particular, heart health and what we can do to optimize performance and minimize risk of disease and failure. During the average lifetime, the heart itself beats about 2.5 billion times. Given this never-ending workload in pushing blood to every part of the body, it's frankly a wonder the heart performs so well for so long and for so many of us. But it can, of course, also fail, brought down by poor diet, lack of exercise, smoking, unlucky genes, and more. In fact, in the UK, it is estimated that over 160,000 people die every year from heart and circulatory diseases. Well, to help us delve deeper into the issue today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Michael Papadakis, Associate Professor and Consultant Cardiologist at St. George's University Hospital. Dr. Papadakis specializes in cardiovascular disease prevention, sports cardiology, and inherited cardiac conditions amongst other areas. He was recently elected as the president of the European Association of Preventive Cardiology and is credited with over 100 publications, as well as the creation of the international ECG criteria for an athlete's evaluation. In 2016, Michael launched a master's program in sports cardiology, the first postgrad qualification of its kind. All that said, the highlight of Michael's CV is surely that he holds a weekly clinic here at Lanzerhof at the Arts Club. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Mario. It's definitely the highlight of my career. <laughs> Pleasure. How are you today? Absolutely fine. Good, good, good. So, uh, well, plenty to discuss today, of course. Um, let, let's start with the, uh, the stat I mentioned earlier, over 160,000 people in this country dying uh, every year from heart and circulatory diseases. Um, but to give it some context, I think uh, the British Heart Foundation, when it was first measuring 60 years ago, that figure was actually over 320,000. So it's, it's more or less halved in 60 years. Um, and actually the figure is even better when considered the size of population back then to now. So um, how do we explain that, Michael? You're absolutely right, Mario. Uh, the first thing to say is that uh, heart disease is the underestimated enemy. And what do I mean by that is that we're always worried about uh, cancer, we're worried about uh, Alzheimer's and dementia, for example, in, in the latter decades. But the reality is that there are in excess of 7 million people living in the UK with underlying heart disease and almost two and a half million of them have coronary artery disease uh, uh, that can predispose to angina, 
or heart attacks. And as you said, it's responsible for a quite significant number of deaths of both men and women. And the reality is that although we have made progress in terms of reducing the burden of death from coronary artery disease, we are facing an issue because we've seen probably because of the lifestyle as well, that we've got younger individuals that may suffer from coronary artery disease, heart attack, and as a result, a, a, a cardiac death. Now, in terms of how we have achieved uh, to reduce uh, the burden of cardiac disease and death from coronary artery disease is by tackling essentially the modifiable risk factors. What do I mean by that is that there are uh, two things that predispose us to heart disease. One is the things we cannot control, mm-hmm. and those are the things we cannot control at least for the time being, like the genes that we inherit from our parents, our ethnic origin, for example. We know that individuals who come from uh, Southeast Asia, they tend to be more predisposed to coronary artery disease compared to individuals of European descent. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there are lots of things that we can control and we can modify. And those include things like smoking, the number one risk factor for coronary artery disease. And we have achieved great steps to reducing the individuals who smoke on a regular basis, particularly in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Things like exercise, and we'll, I'm sure we'll discuss that in more detail later on. Mm-hmm. Things like controlling the blood pressure looking after our cholesterol. And all those are things that we have focused as a medical community and at government level, and we have managed to tackle in a significant way. So I can tell you that over the past decades, smoking has gone down and we definitely reduced the individuals who suffer from high blood pressure and high cholesterol. Mm. So it, it is, is directly attributable to, to this reduction? So essentially by reducing the risk factors that predispose you to heart disease, mm. we have achieved to reduce the overall burden in terms of uh, deaths from coronary artery disease. Mm. But as I said, there are certain challenges that remain up there. And one of the main challenges is uh, the reduced physical activity levels and exercise and uh, individuals gradually becoming as an average more overweight. Yes. We shall certainly look at that uh, in more detail. Let's get to know you, Michael, uh, and and our listeners uh, for their benefit as well. Maybe explain a little bit about what you do and and what a typical week looks like. So uh, my my interest in cardiology started from very early years uh, in in the medical school, and that was part of the impact of cardiovascular disease in society and also the opportunity that you've got as a medical professional to uh, uh, reduce that uh, impact and improve the quality as well as the number of years that people live with your interventions. So my interest started in general cardiology uh, and then I decided to focus on preventative cardiology, which was not uh, and still is not part of our regular cardiology curriculum in, in terms of being underestimated of the potential impact that may have in our society. But I decided to focus on preventive cardiology and also within preventive cardiology, I focused on what we call sports cardiology. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
which essentially its main aim is to try and encourage safe participation in exercise. Part of it is looking after elite athletic individuals as well. And the other thing is I focused on looking at younger individuals and preventing Sunday cardiac death and cardiac disease in uh, individuals of a younger age, starting from uh, young uh, children, adolescents, uh, and individuals up to the age of 35, 40. So this is all incredibly topical, of course, uh, with what happened in the recent European Championships 2020 with uh, Christian Eriksson. I'd also like to talk about that in a bit as well. So um, uh, with all the patients that you see and in, in the many clinics that you hold, you, you referred to, to controllable and non-controllable factors. What are the main drivers, Michael? I, I, is it more the controllable factors or the non-controllable my impression is that it's mostly the, the controllable factors that uh, will affect uh, coronary artery disease and the development of heart disease, particularly as we grow older. As I said before, my, I've got a lot of interest in younger as well as older individuals. So there are certain things that we carry in our genes that we get from our parents a lot of the time, and those are not things we can control. And those are things that will affect predominantly younger individuals. There are conditions called inherited cardiac conditions, mm. and those are predominantly responsible for causing issues, including sudden cardiac death, in the younger population. By younger population, by convention, we use the 35 to 40 uh, years. Mm. Now, beyond that, uh, as we grow older, then it's the controllable risk factors. Yes, someone may have a genes, as we explained earlier, uh, an ethnic background, which is associated with a particular genetic makeup that predisposes them mm. to develop heart disease in their later years. And here we're predominantly discussing coronary artery disease, that fairing up that the arteries that supply with blood are hard yet that predispose mm. to angina and heart attack. But the reality is that if you manage to control things like smoking, if you manage to be physically active, if you manage to control your weight, look after your blood pressure, your cholesterol and your blood sugar, then the likelihood is that you will greatly reduce the chances of getting heart disease at later years, irrespective mm. of your genetic makeup. And do you think, so, so it's really primarily a question of education and awareness. Um, do, do you feel the government is doing enough? Uh, we as a nation generally are, are aware enough? Uh, is there more that we can do? I, I think, Mario, that over the past decade, there is definitely a greater awareness of the risk factors that if we manage to reduce at the population level, then it may have a better impact in terms of reducing heart disease and reducing death because of heart disease. And you will have seen even recently in the news that there is a lot of discussion about whether they're going to put a, a salt tax or a sugar tax mm -hmm. or a fat uh, tax in the different foods. And also there, is, there are efforts from uh, the respective governments in order to encourage us to do more physical activity by building more cycle roads, for example, by encouraging mm. people to work, to walk to work rather than uh, take the, uh, the, the transportation or use their cars. So there is definitely a greater awareness, 
but I have to say there are lots of things that can yet be done in terms of adopting healthier lifestyles. And this will definitely come through education. And that's where schools and our teachers have a big role to play, mm. as well as the medical community that needs to lead by example. I, 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 I remember as a young boy going to some doctors that were making certain recommendations with uh, a cigarette and a sandwich by their side. <laughs> and that never goes down well in no. terms of convincing your uh, patient to lead a healthy lifestyle. So I think we all have to lead by example. In Absolutely. Uh, uh, and actually, for the avoidance of doubt for our listeners who cannot see Michael, he is a fine physical specimen. But point taken. Um, let's look at those countries with, with lower rates of heart disease, Michael. Um, Japan, certainly Korea, I, I believe France. I'm not sure about your, your, your alma mater, Greece, um, I think the Mediterranean diet gets a lots of publicity, but they do like a cigarette in Greece. <laughs> I'm afraid to say that they do. And uh, unfortunately, I think Greece has left that group of countries. But in essence, I think it comes back to the things that you do well at the population level. I have to say, and it has to do a lot about controlling all those risk factors, or mm. put a positive spin on it, encouraging all the positive health attitudes, whether that relates to exercise, whether it relates to what you eat or what you drink. And I, I have to be honest and say that sometimes it's quite difficult to decipher, for example, why France is doing much better than what we do. And we have to remember that there are a number of different factors that may be involved, which apart from attitudes may include a preventive medicine and preventive cardiology. Part of it will be the regular health checkups and try mm. to identify those risk factors before they cause an issue. Because one of the main problems, Mario, is that no of the risk factors that I mentioned earlier, whether it's high blood pressure, high cholesterol, will present with any symptoms until mm. it's a bit too late, until someone gets the heart attack or gets their stroke. And that's what also presents a big challenge in treating those risk factors in individuals because as you realize yourself, if, you're if you have no symptoms, mm -hmm. the fact that the cardiologist tells you that you've got increased risk of getting a heart attack or a stroke in 10 years' time doesn't quite convince uh, people uh, to adopt healthier attitudes or take the necessary medical treatment. Mm. Yes. That said, measuring and screening can only help, of course. Yes, and uh, I'm a, obviously I'm a great believer in preventive cardiology and I'm a great mm. believer in screening. And I think given the clear association between risk factors who don't necessarily cause uh, symptoms, so you don't have any warning signs per se in, mm. in order to realize that those risk factors are present, uh, I think screening has a definite place in preventing uh, heart disease and preventing those uh, deaths from heart disease in our society. So, uh, yes, before we look at that further, going back to that list and seeing France uh, on the list, 
Um, maybe some listening are hoping that red wine is uh, it's not a myth and that it that does actually help. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Dr. Papadakis? Well, it's uh, it's one of those things that it's very difficult to put your finger on. Uh, in, in terms of alcohol, obviously the recommendation is that we try and drink in moderation. Mm-hmm. Anything between 14 to 20 units per week is acceptable, closer to 14 rather than 20. Mm-hmm. That roughly equates to about a glass, maybe two, but those are the small European glasses. <laughs> Not the huge ones you find in the pubs these days. <laughs> and uh, there were some studies that demonstrated potentially red wine is a bit better than uh, white wine or other alcohol, but those are fairly weak studies. So I don't think we can attribute uh, the better results that France sells only to red wine, it probably would have to do with uh, the diet as well and other influences within the country. Got it. Okay. In terms of screening, cardiovascular screening, is that, um, and seeing a cardiologist generally, should we see, should we have annual checks? And, and if so, at what age would you recommend we start? Well, as I said before, I'm a great believer in screening and preventive cardiology, particularly for heart disease. Now, here I would like to differentiate in in two groups, which I've mentioned earlier, the younger individuals, those who are below the age of 30 or 40 years of age, and those are the individuals that are more at risk because of their genetic makeup or because Uh, they get born with conditions that they may not be aware. Uh, And the individuals who are over the age of 40 were essentially the coronary artery disease, the heart disease that gradually builds up over years, uh, predominates. Now, if we take the younger age group, uh, the recommendation in terms of individuals who exercise on a regular basis and athletic individuals is that they get screened every one to two years, particularly if they participate in highly competitive sports. And those recommendations come from the European Society of Cardiology, even from our American colleagues. They do disagree as to how you go about screening them, but the bottom line there is that you need to perform screening. That screening is particularly aimed in identifying inherited cardiac conditions, or what we call congenital conditions, which are usually small holes in the heart or narrowings of some valves that people get born with. Now, that sort of screening uh, will usually compose of a detailed questionnaire. So when you have a consultation with your cardiologist, you will go through a number of questions. You will try to identify if you're experiencing any symptoms, such as getting out of breath, out of proportion to what you will expect. If you're experiencing any uh, palpitations, any abnormal heart uh, sensations, if you're experiencing chest pain, this is spells of fainting episodes. The second thing that uh, most cardiologists will agree that needs to be done is a simple 12 lead ECG, and that's a simple tracing of the heart that essentially shows how the electricity around the heart conducts and it's able to detect a number of different conditions. It's a very useful and quite cheap screening tool. And the third thing that I would recommend that you do at least once or twice as a young individual in your lifetime is an ultrasound scan of the heart, what we call an echocardiogram. 
which is able to directly look at the heart, look at the size of the heart, the strength of it, and detect whether there are any structural abnormalities. So mm-hmm. that's the minimum set of investigations for the younger individuals. For the older individuals, those who are over 35, 40 years of age, because we're looking now for uh, the fairing of the arteries predominantly, the coronary artery disease that may predispose to heart attacks or angina, then we need to do the detailed questionnaire again. We need to do the ECG, but we'll also need to do some blood tests in order to check what their cholesterol level is, what is their blood glucose. We need to do a detailed clinical examination as well to look at the blood pressure level, okay? And depending on the initial findings, then they may require further investigations, which may include an ultrasound scan. And very importantly, because you're looking for fairing of the arteries, that fairing of the arteries is more likely to become evident if you put someone and do the ECG while they're exercising, okay? Mm-hmm. So it, because the blood flow to the heart may be enough when someone is resting in a couch and being examined, but it may become evident that there is an issue when you stress them to their maximum and look at their ECG and how the heart overall behaves. Hmm. Uh, right, a couple of questions from listening to all that. That's fascinating. With the younger demographic that you described there, and particularly with uh, professional sportsmen and women in that younger demographic, the recommendations are that they're screened. Has that been embraced and adopted by all sports now as standard? So in the United, first of all, it's important to say that those are the European and the American recommendations. In the United Kingdom, at the population level, the National Screening Committee doesn't necessarily recommend uh, screening for everyone. In terms of the sporting uh, organizations, the great majority of them have embraced it. So whether you look at football, rugby, tennis, cricket, athletics, all of them try to screen their players and their elite players, and they will usually screen them once every year to every couple of years, depending on the different sporting organizations. And those who are more financially endowed, they tend to do more investigations compared to those who have uh, less uh, or more restricted funds. Mm. Which, which I guess leads us now into uh, this summer's um, very high profile uh, incident with Christian Eriksen. Uh, could screening have detected uh, the weakness and, and the potential issue there for what actually happened? The first thing to say is that we're all very, very, very relieved to see Christian Eriksen leaving the stadium uh, fully being uh, awake and not uh, intubated. And obviously we've all seen that it appears that he has uh, fully recovered from that mm-hmm. incident. And I just say that because the reality is that a lot of the time this is not then the result of essentially what seemed to have been a cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of, obviously, I won't be able to comment on the on the particulars of the case, but as 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 a general scenario, uh, uh, the reality is that most footballers that play in the United Kingdom, like Ericsson, as we all know, played for Tottenham, or uh, for in Italy because he played now for Milan, yes, uh, they do get screened. So. 
the, the, the reality is obviously that screening will detect conditions. It will not detect all conditions. And that's a very, very important point as well, because individuals, the fact that they got screened once doesn't mean that that will uh, give them the all clear, if you want, for the rest of their life. If they were to experience any symptoms or if something changes and we can go into the COVID-19 pandemic that we all lived through over the past one and a half years, but then the likelihood is that they will need to be reevaluated. So to answer your question, yes, screening can potentially prevent uh, uh, those episodes of unexpected cardiac arrest of sudden cardiac death. And a big Italian study ages ago has demonstrated that it has the potential to reduce sudden cardiac deaths in up to 90%. Okay? So it is a very important tool. However, it's not by its own right. We also need to be very aware that if something were to happen to an individual, we need to be trained in the basic life support, which again, it's an initiative that has been growing over the past uh, 10 years, not mm-hmm. only for athletic individuals, but uh, if you see someone who collapsed on the floor, you should be able to know how to do the basics, particularly with elite athletes. Uh, as a European Society of Cardiology, we have produced a document of a detailed emergency response plan that all teams and all team physicians should be aware and there has been a lot of work done by FIFA and UEFA in terms of training players, uh, coaches mm-hmm. that are able to intervene if there were to be such an event. So in terms of prevention, on one hand, we've got screening, but on mm-hmm. the other hand, we should also have our basic life support and our automated external defibrillators that can definitely save lives. If yes. you go there quickly. Yes, and, and, and I think it's... Um Christian Eriksson's in in many ways, you know, as shocking as it was, and the images are around the world, you know, will remain with us, unfortunately, because it was showed um, showed live, and and maybe that's a, a matter of discussion and debate as to whether that was the right thing or not. But it it did uh, highlight um, the importance of training defibrillators on site, um, and. And actually, that saved his life. Is the, is the prompt medical response uh, immediately that saved his life? That's 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 exactly true, Mario. Because the reality, unfortunately, is that when such an event happened, we've got about two to three minutes to start basic life support, and about five minutes to get a defibrillator there quickly to shock them out of the regular heart rhythm. Because unfortunately, after those five minutes are gone, the chances of someone having a meaningful recovery uh, diminish fairly quickly. And that's why training is extremely important. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, one thing you can maybe clarify for, for certainly for me and all of us, um, is that it's not necessarily the case that Christian Eriksson must now retire. Uh, he's, he's had a device fitted, an ICD. Maybe you could explain a little bit more about that. But wh- why is it that he could actually continue playing? That would be a, a, a good discussion for a proper debate in a sports cardiology conference uh, because uh, the reality is that once someone had a cardiac arrest, uh, that puts them at high risk of having another cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. And that will depend a lot as well on what, if they identified an underlying condition and what underlying condition they identified. Uh, 
So I have to say that a, a lot of cardiologists will be very reluctant to sign someone off in terms of participating in elite sports. Mm-hmm. However, on the other hand, the, you're absolutely right that there are athletes and there are athletes who are outside there in the, in the public arena and they've made, it, uh, made people aware that they have a condition and they have a defibrillator and they continue to exercise at elite level on a regular basis. Uh, what I would say is that the important thing for me is that uh, individuals, uh, all individuals have the right to exercise and all individuals should be exercising to a certain level, to a certain degree. It's about defining what's that exercise prescription. So for me, there is no individual with cardiac disease, whether they've got a device or not, who should not be exercising on a regular basis and having a physically active lifestyle. But the question is, to what intensity, to what frequency, and at what level. And that's where I think it's useful as well to have a cardiologist who specializes in this particular area so that they're able to provide that recommendation. Because we have to be honest, Mario, and say that unfortunately our medical and cardiology training has not really been that good. I I can be honest with you and tell you that in the medical school and even during my cardiology training, no one ever taught me about exercise prescription. Mm. No one ever forced me to go to a cardiac rehabilitation program in one of our hospitals and see how that's done. These are all things that I did later on myself. And unfortunately, because the doctors are so bad at prescribing exercise, beyond Mm. telling people to exercise at moderate level, which neither you nor me nor anyone else knows exactly what that means. And that obviously creates an issue for uh, our patients as well. So mm-hmm. essentially what I'll say is that everyone needs to participate in physical activity. Everyone needs to exercise. Individuals who have a defibrillator, they need to be a bit more cautious with it. And, and talking of which, the, the ICD, can you tell us a little bit in, in, in simple terms how, how it works? Yes, yeah, so the, the ICD, people will have heard the term ICD, which stands for a, a defibrillator, essentially, uh, or they may have heard the term pacemaker. Now, mm-hmm. both those are small devices. They, 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 they are essentially batteries that have a software. And w- the way they work is you connect them to wires, and those wires will go and lie in the heart. It's essentially a minor procedure that you need to do, or they can lie nowadays. We've got new models that we're able to put them under the skin so they're not in your bloodstream. Now, what the ICD does, it's essentially a software. It looks as how your heart beats and it monitors your heartbeat. And if your heartbeat was to become very irregular or you develop a heartbeat that may predispose you to a fainting episode or a sudden cardiac arrest, then the ICD will intervene and in a way, to put it simply, it will jumpstart the car. It will jumpstart the engine. So it will throw a big shock at it. So it resets the whole electrical activity of your heart and it gets back to its normal rhythm. Uh, the defibrillators are devices that have been extremely useful. They definitely saved a lot of lives. 
Uh, however, there are devices that are associated with complications. Don't forget that you've got a foreign body, essentially, within your body. You've got some metal within your body. And that's why we're always very careful and we always have to weigh extremely carefully the benefits versus the potential risks of implanting such a device in an individual, particularly in younger individuals like Christian Eriksen, for example, that they will have to live with that device for many years to come. Thank you. Uh, going back to something you mentioned earlier with the older demographic now uh, and, and in the way we screen, uh, we're looking for furring of the arteries. And, and I guess uh, that's a function of time uh, plus, I suppose, lifestyle and nutritional intake that are contributing factors. Um, is that furring of the arteries reversible? Michael, give us some hope. <laughs> yeah, the, the way I put it is that that filling of the artery is definitely controllable. So uh, the first thing to say is that it is expected that as someone grows older, that they will get some filling of the arteries, and that's not surprising. The question is how we can delay that filling of the arteries building and building to a significant extent so that it essentially limits the blood flow that goes uh, through that coronary artery, which is like a tube essentially transferring uh, water. Uh, so if it limits the blood flow to our heart. Now, the things that we can do is going back to all the risk factors that we, uh, we discussed earlier. So it has to do with your lifestyle a lot. So are you physically active? It's well established that exercise is the most underutilized tool that we've got in our armamentorium as doctors. We don't use it. We simply do not use it. We prefer to prescribe medication, but we don't use exercise. Now, part of the problem is that we, we as doctors don't necessarily know how to use it. And the second thing is that, as you know, Mario, there's no free lunch. Exercise requires uh, time, requires effort, in order to reap the benefits of it. And that's one of the things actually that attracted me to Lansehoff in terms of taking a very comprehensive and a very rounded approach to supporting people healthy, as well as those who have risk factors, as well as those who have heart disease, to build an exercise program with all the different supporting elements within it. Yes. Apart from exercise, is smoking extremely important? Is our diet? And those are all things that we can control. And as I said before, then it's about keeping an eye on those risk factors such as blood pressure, cholesterol, and blood glucose, which are, by the way, influenced in a major way by your diet, your smoking or not, as well as the exercise that you do, and try to reduce them as much as possible. So there is definitely a way to ensure that we keep that fairing up to an absolute minimum. And mm -hmm. even when you have developed the fairing up, then we know that controlling those risk factors can at least make it stable, if mm -hmm. not even reverse it in some cases. And again, exercise has a major role to play in that. Excellent. Hope given. Uh, we all need to cycle to work, not to drive. And, uh, Most definitely, and we, we just need to have exercise as part of our routine. Mm -hmm. And as I said before, that's I think that's one of the things that we do very well at Lancepov, because essentially exercise 
It's about having the right support as well. It's not just someone giving an exercise prescription, which we try to do in as much detail as possible, but it's me as a cardiologist working well with uh, our medical director and orthopedic surgeon who is able, Mm -hmm. because obviously there are injuries associated with exercise or potential injuries if you do the exercise in the wrong way. Working Mm -hmm. together with our physiotherapists, our osteopath, our nutritionist, our personal trainer, and providing that holistic approach to exercise prescription. Because the point, Mario, here is that not only people need to go into exercise, but it's about having the right support in order to be able to maintain Mm -hmm. that exercise, ideally lifelong. I should say at this point that uh, we uh, here are launching our health screening programs. And uh, for more information on on Michael's work and the screening programs in general, please email lanzerhoff at theartsclub.co.uk. Um, coming back to that, maybe for our listeners, describe CPET, what that is, what you're looking for, and, and why we, uh, we, we embrace that here. Well, a cardiopulmonary exercise test, also known as CPET, is essentially an exercise test that provides more information compared to your regular treadmill test that some of our listeners uh, may have had at some point. So with a cardiopulmonary exercise test, essentially what we do is we will put you on a bicycle or a treadmill Uh, uh, we will get you to exercise to your absolute maximum. And while you're exercising, what we do is we monitor how your heart, how your lungs, as well as your muscles behave. So essentially what we're able to deduce from the cardiopulmonary exercise test is whether your heart is healthy, whether there is any significant fairing of the coronary arteries that we're discussing before. We keep... Uh, we continuously do an ECG while you're exercising to check that your heart is not throwing any inappropriate extra beats. We're able to see how your heart rate behaves during exercise and how it recovers. We're able to assess your overall fitness and we're also able to assess the fitness of uh, your lungs. So we are able to get a lot of information And then with that information, we're able to inform you, apart from your fitness as well as your training zones, some people may be more Mm. interested in reducing their weight and losing fat, for example, rather than building the fitness. And cardiopalmy exercise test is a good test to give you that training zone that will give you more fat burning rather than burning uh, glucose. Mm. And we're able to communicate that with uh, our uh, with our personal trainers, for example, and build a very individualized, if you want, exercise program for you. Well, I look forward to mine next week. Most definitely. As you know, we've got a competition going on. (laughs) Luckily, I'm not competitive, Michael. (laughs) Um, Thank you for explaining that. Uh, Also, something else that that is in our consciousness now is, is that sitting... This is the phrase, sitting is considered the new smoking. And um, that's, that's uh, quite a worry, seeing as that uh, most of us sit most of the day. And it cannot be offset by, by exercise, actually. It's the act of sitting for long periods. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit more about that. And uh, in fact, as I say that, I, th- I think I should stand up for the rest of this podcast. 
You're absolutely right, and this is an extremely important point, and we've become gradually more aware of it over the research over the past 10 to 15 years. So as you said before, we used to worry only about how much exercise someone does during the day, but the reality is that sitting and being completely inactive over a long period of time, that has a significant impact as well. So there is lots of research that shows that uh, it's not only how much exercise you do, but actually how long are you physically active in terms of uh, standing or walking uh, during the day. And both those factors contribute to your overall cardiovascular health. And my recommendation to our listeners would be that even if they do a sitting day, sorry, sitting job, there are they should try and stand and do some even exercise on the spot at regular mm-hmm. intervals during the working day. And obviously, the other thing that uh, I've uh, I've tried to adopt, at least at home, is uh, I've got a standing desk. I don't know if you tried. Ah, uh, yes, I've been looking into that actually. Uh, I've been sufficiently worried, but I haven't actually gone ahead and and, and purchased one. Yes, I, I think some of them are quite pricey. <laughs> at least the good ones that go up and down at the market. <laughs> but the reality is that that can have a significant impact. And, and to be honest with you, the other thing that you find out with standing desk is that your meetings tend to be more to the point and shorten a bit when you've got people standing opposite you rather than sitting comfortable in a chair. <laughs> We've got to stand for the rest of this podcast, Michael. Um, but but yes, point taken. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, it, it, because we we just were never designed to sit at all as human beings. We we're, we're designed for perpetual motion. Exactly. So w- w- it's not just important to do exercise, but it's also important to leave that uh, group of active couch potatoes in terms of the people who go to the gym. They do lots of exercise for forty five minutes, and then they sit for the job for the rest of the day. Mm. Active couch potato. Oh, <laughs> okay. Uh, need to reevaluate. Um, thank you, Michael. Uh, this has been fascinating and, and, and enlightening. Um, let, let's maybe turn to you. Um, what are the rules that you personally live by? Uh, knowing what you know, how, how do you keep active and, and, and how do you try and mitigate you know, the passage of time? I have to be honest and say that, first of all, I find it extremely challenging uh, because I've got three young children and I've got an extremely busy job as well. Mm. But as I tell to, or I try to lead by example, I say that that's not not an excuse. Uh, For me, in terms of living a physical active lifestyle, what I try to do is I try to incorporate it within my daily routine. And what do I mean by that is that I try to walk or run to work once or twice a week. If I'm unable to do that, I've got an excellent group of uh, colleagues here at St. George's Hospital. And what we've uh, uh, established now over the past few months is that we've created a running club. So every Wednesday morning, we'll find an hour, even if it means that we don't get lunch, and we'll go and run all together. Because that's the other thing. If you feel that it's impossible for you to do it on your own, then you can get help, and you can get help either by going to an organized environment like Lancehope, for example, where you'll find the right support, 
or the other option, obviously, if you want to do it outside, is find some friends who are mm-hmm. better runners than you, so they can support you in that uh, routine of physical activity. In, in terms of the rest of the lifestyle, I'm, I'm, I'm not a smoker. I, I did smoke as a, a, a as a university student, mm-hmm. but uh, I left that for research purposes. And for research purposes, <laughs> always. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I'm trying to maintain as healthy diet as possible. As you know, I come from a Greek background, so uh, the, the olive oil, the fresh fruits and fish are part of our diet. And thankfully, we have maintained it here in the UK because some of it has been lost uh, back in Greece. Thank you for that. And great advice, by the way. Um, I'm glad to see you living by example, leading by example. Um, you mentioned your lifestyle with 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 work and family, and and of course, most of us can relate to that, but not not but certainly not the maybe the job that you do. But that all creates physical and emotional stress. How how big contributing factors are physical and emotional stress to to cardiovascular health? My personal views are they contribute to a significant degree. Again, in terms of trying to organize particular studies to prove that, as you realize, it can be very challenging because there are a number of factors that will be contributing. However, at the very least, there is no doubt that significant stress uh, can be associated into unhealthy coping practices. And that can include smoking, it can include excessive alcohol drinking, it can include comfort eating with typically uh, diets that are high in fat and sugar and also physical inactivity because it will have a big influence as well in terms of our overall mental well-being. So the way I will put it is that at the very least, stress, both physical but also emotional stress, can predispose to practices that uh, will lead to cardiac disease. And that's what I mean when I say that we need to get a more holistic approach in terms of the overall well-being of people, encouraging the right lifestyle and encouraging exercise. Because again, going back to that message, it's not enough about providing exercise prescription. Maybe you need to have a psychologist or psychotherapist as well for the individuals who need it in order to get them in the right frame of mind, reduce the stress levels, and get them into exercise. And by the way, exercise is also a stress reliever itself. Very true indeed. Michael, it's always a pleasure talking to you. What is the the advice you'd like to leave, the last piece of advice you'd like to leave with, with our listeners? What I would like to say to our listeners is that we all need to to adopt a more healthy lifestyle because that has implications one way or another. There is no way that there won't be implications later on in life in terms of our our overall quality of health, not only quantity of health. For me, exercise is that one tool that we also try and adopt as much as possible in terms of regular physical activity within our lifestyle. And there is ample of evidence, if someone is not convinced out there in the literature, that people who exercise on a regular basis, they live longer, 
uh, they tend to have a better quality of life. And I think as a, a medical profession, as uh, Lansehoff, as government, these are the sort of lifestyles that we need to encourage in the safest possible way. And that where the screening before exercise comes. Michael, as always, uh, it's, it's wonderful talking to you. This has been incredibly educational, very informative uh, and, and very interesting. Uh, we shall see you very soon. For our listeners, if anyone is interested in learning more about Michael's screening services here or our programs in general, please email lanzerhoff at theartsclub.co.uk. In the meantime, Michael, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Michael. See you next week. Bye.